Welcome to episode 21 of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with researcher Jose Antonio. Jose, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name is Jose Antonio. Uh, just a little bit of my background. I am currently a professor at Nova Southeastern University, uh, located in South Florida. Um, I'm also the uh, co-founder and CEO of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. We are an academic nonprofit focused on sports nutrition. And then recently, myself and a colleague from neuroscience, we formed another academic nonprofit called the Society for Neurosports, where we try to combine exercise science and neuroscience. So probably in the last decade, I focused most of my work on sports nutrition and dietary supplementation, uh, mainly in trained people. I don't really do research in untrained people. So that's sort of in a nutshell, uh, what my background is. I got my, uh, just academically for people who are curious, I got my PhD at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, and I did a postdoctoral research fellowship there as well in the field of endocrinology and metabolism. Brilliant. So you have an absolute wealth of research experience. Is that fair to I've say? Been, yeah, I've been doing this for th over three decades. I always forget. It's like, holy crap, it's been a long time. <laughs> I've been doing, doing this. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, I guess supposedly wisdom comes with age. I'm, I mean, that's what I'm hoping. So we'll see. It's funny you should say that. I've recently heard that uh, people who are older are not necessarily experienced or, or wiser. That's what someone's reminded me of because you can have people who are in a position for a long time and they don't try and update their beliefs. But you definitely have. You know, you've, you're constantly putting out new research. So thank you. You're doing that. So then, right now, what is your main area of research? My main area of research is probably in the sort of overall dietary supplement category, just to give you an example of what we're currently doing. Uh, I have three projects going on. One is um, just pure physiology, where we're looking at uh, blood lactate response to stand-up paddling, which obviously that's one of my interests because I do stand-up paddling races here. So we go to local races and, and we measure blood lactate just to see what the, what the response is. So that's one project. Another one is we're looking at the effects of a CBD-containing product on recovery from delayed onset muscle soreness. And then a third one, we're looking at a specific pre-workout supplement on measures of cognition, sustained attention, and also pain threshold. So it's, you know, it's not focused on a specific supplement. It's really just anything that I find interesting. In fact, that's how I do research. It's like, huh, is that an interesting project to do? Yeah, sure. Like for instance, uh, during the pandemic, we were actually able to collect data on effects of creatine on cogn cognitive function in untrained people, which is, was a little different for me because I don't like doing, honestly don't like doing studies on untrained people because at the end of the day, you and I probably deal with just trained people. Well, at least I do. I don't, I don't know about you, but um, I like doing studies on trained people because I want to apply it to people who exercise. Yeah, you get more uh, effectiveness. Whereas uh, if someone isn't exercising, you don't know if they're going to be consistent or how they bought in all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So exactly. just, just to give an overview of supplements for people who are either exercising or not currently exercising, how should they view uh, supplements? Should they be something that they can have an immediate effect? You have to, if you commit to a supplement, you have to commit to it, you know, for, for life or for a couple of months, could you give a kind of short way to look at supplements um, for people who maybe don't know a whole lot about them? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the one thing I do that might be a bit different than 
my colleagues, and this includes RDs, PhDs, medical doctors, et cetera, is I've never viewed supplements as a separate category from food. Um, I hear this constantly, and, and, and I even ask my friends who actually do research, I hear this common refrain, you got to clean up your diet, however that is defined, before you take a supplement. And I always say, what data supports that? And the answer is no data supports that. Yet I think it's, it makes people feel good emotionally, which is odd because science is supposed to be based on data, not emotion. And the God's honest truth is you could have the worst diet ever. And it, and, and it is entirely possible that the supplement may actually be better for you. I, just to give you an example, creatine. And that's, I'll use that one as the most, uh, the one I get the most questions about. Certainly, if you're a vegan or vegetarian, creatine will help you more than anyone. There's nothing, no, nothing a vegan or vegetarian can take that will give you those benefits. But let's say you just have a poor diet. I mean, I'm around college students all the time. Their diet is absolutely horrid. They might skip meals. Then they might have pizza. Then they might have fried chicken. I mean, it's just awful. I mean, when you're 18 years old, you could get away with it. But that group may actually benefit from creatine more so than the well-trained bodybuilder who is very cognizant of protein intake, carb intake, fat intake, takes whatever supplements he or she needs to achieve skeletal muscle hypertrophy. So the idea that there's a hierarchy of like foods first, supplements second, makes zero sense. What, what, what it should be is what's your goal? Does the food help you reach your goal? Does the supplement help, help you reach your goal? And if it does, then you do it. I mean, there's not, there's not an order you go through. So to me, the first thing I ask a person, you know, uh, is the goal. What's your goal? Do you have an athletic goal or is it a physique? You want to look prettier? Okay. It's kind of a weird goal because <laughs> based on my experience working on and off in the category since 19, probably the 1990s, nobody's ever happy with their physique. So even though they have a goal, it's like, well, I want to, you know, get leaner, you know, show my abs. And I find, okay, well, once you achieve that, then what? You can't hold it. <laughs> You might diet down and look great for a month, maybe two, and then you sort of revert back to the way you eat. There are very few people who are so disciplined that, that they deprive themselves of, I guess, foods that may otherwise not be the best for physique. And I say, unless you're making money on it, which how many people make money in the physique sports? Like nobody, nobody does. Um, but unless you're making money on it, does it really matter if you're you know, whether you're 15% fat or 18% fat, well, to a lot of people it matters because, you know, when we dex them, they they cry, eh, I'm, I'm fatter than I thought it was. I mean, I'm making fun of them. They don't really cry, but I, you could tell they're very upset because the number is like higher than they expect. When in fact, no one really gives a crap what your number is. Um, so to me, the overall thing is don't treat dietary supplements as a category separate from foods. It's, they're all what I call consumable. You put them in your mouth, is a powder, is a capsule or whatever. And it should help you achieve a goal. That's to me, that's the bottom line. It has to help you achieve a goal. Yeah. So then you know your goal and you can see what works in line with that goal. For example, protein or creatine or fat loss. And then you determine you, you determine the kind of you do a cost analysis benefit kind of situation and work it out from there. It's clearly Actually, like that's, yeah, that's sorry to interrupt you, Ross. That's exactly okay. it. It's a it's a risk reward assessment that everyone has to make. Um, like for instance, I'm trying to think, well, I'm trying to think what would be risky because at the end of the day, most of these supplements aren't even risky, but let's pretend there's a perceived risk. So, and I get this question from, uh, as it pertains to high school athletes, you know, their parents might be 
like, oh my God, my son wants to take whey protein or he wants to take creatine. And I always assure parents that the risk is so low as to be non-existent, <laughs> but they don't believe me. It's, it's like, well, you know, I read online that creatine might, and creatine in these protein supplements might cause kidney damage. And, and, you know, the whole slew of stuff that comes out. And I don't know how, and I think that was one of your questions, but I think, I don't know how you combat that. Because to be honest, I've been dealing with this before you were alive. Let's go back to the 1980s when I was an undergrad in college. I heard the same thing. Now you fast forward to 2022, I still hear the same thing. So, so what is it about the culture, <laughs> even in the, let's call it the, the, the health sciences, uh, anything semi-related exercise, what is it about that culture that keeps promoting the same lies every year? And, you know, I haven't come up with a good answer. And it's, it's like, do people just not want to read or they, they have a preconceived notion? And, and here's the scary part. I have students, like former students of mine, they'll, they'll, um, they'll text me and they say, hey, look what this professor is saying. And it's the same stuff probably you're aware of. It's like, you know, I remember getting a screenshot. She's, she said, hey, you're not going to believe what this professor said. So she screenshotted the PowerPoint presentation and it listed all the harmful effects of, of consuming uh, protein powder. And it was, just, it was just made up. It was literally just made up stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is a college professor in a nutrition department, nutrition department. And I'm thinking, I, I don't, I can't explain this. I honestly, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. So that's interesting you say. So I was reading a book recently and the point being made was like, uh, some people have well intentions, but they could be completely wrong about something. And I was like, on one of my previous podcasts, I was talking to a behavior change researcher and we were like, why, you know, is there people who are interested in uh, working for tobacco companies? So it's like, uh, you know, this is it's obviously damaging for health, right? But the book made, made me think that uh, if there wasn't people doing something wrong or incorrect, it would make it easier to do the kind of the right thing or your work, for example, right? And then maybe your points wouldn't be as well formulated or, as, or they wouldn't be steel mad. So instead of thinking like, why do they do it? It's kind of just like to keep yourself sane at night and not be like up all night. It's like, <laughs> it's like for me anyway, I could think of it like uh, it's an opportunity to make a better point, you know, Does that makes sense. I know it's, it's well, a bit, it's a bit like airy fairy kind of thinking or wishful thinking, but <laughs> so, so it's an opportunity for people like us to make a better point is what you're saying. Yeah. It gives us, it gives us a, a better opportunity to make a counterpoint, you know, instead of like slam dunking the whole time being like, just take protein. It improves your life. Someone else. Oh yeah. Like, I'm a, right. I'm a firm believer in, you know, free and Free and open debate. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm never for censoring points of view. In fact, sometimes the dumb points of view I like because it entertains myself, it entertains <laughs> my colleagues. We have a good laugh about it. And then we realize, oh my God, we're, we're really outnumbered. <laughs> like for every, every one of us who does research in exercise and sports science, they're literally out, out and, we're, and we're talking about educated clinicians, you know, um, mm. whether it's athletic trainers, medical doctors, dietitians, and even other scientists. There are literally thousands of them that have the opposite point of view. And, and one of the things I tell my students all the time in, in class is I say, I don't want you to believe me because I'm up here telling you. I don't want you to. If you think I'm wrong, make sure you look up the data yourself and come to a conclusion. And if I am wrong, tell me why you think I'm wrong. I say that to everyone. And because um, I don't want them to, lead, to graduate from school and basically read, well, this expert said that. I'm like, okay, well, just like you, I don't have time to read everything. Like, for instance, if, if someone said, 
you know, uh, something to the effect of a supplement that affects brain function. I'm no expert in neuroscience. I mean, so would I generally defer to that person? In general, yes. But at the end of the day, I still have access to that information. Um, and it would behoove me to learn as much about it. Uh, but I would not foster an opinion that was, uh, that was based on nothing. Like I, I try not to give an opinion unless I, you know, unless it's, you know, I'll tell people if I were to speculate or if I were to guess so that they know I'm speculating or guessing, but I would never say anything with certainty in a field that's outside of my expertise. Yeah. Very good practice. Actually, you remind me of the researcher, Daniel Kahneman, and he said that, well, apparently this is what he does when he gets proven wrong. Uh, he smiles. So when there's something that he's sure of, when he gets proven wrong, he's like, oh, good, because I've actually learned something new. Obviously, the, the, the way to counteract that is to not be too sure of too many things like outside your field, like you say. Right. Um, but you just mentioned about the thousands of people who are going against you in the work you do. So actually, one of the listener questions I'll jump ahead to is this, this listener had uh, their therapist say, you need to stop taking creatine and protein because it's bad for your skeletal muscle. Is there any, can you think of any reason why like a psychologist, someone in the psychology field might dissuade someone from, from taking protein or creatine if they're already taking it? Is there any potential side effects? Well, the quick answer to that in terms of potential side effects is no, there, there aren't any. Um, and the whole, and let's deal with protein versus protein, you know, whether it's whey protein powder or casein or whatever, I tell people it's food. You're eating food. When did <laughs> it's like telling people, well, you shouldn't eat chicken because that chicken protein might be where'd that come from? The creatines might be more interesting because people don't a lot of people don't realize creatine is already present in meat. And in its highest concentration, it's present in fish. And me personally, my opinion is I tell I tell everyone I think the single best food you could eat is fish, particularly fatty fish because of the protein, the N3 fatty acids. Um, it's just a great it's a, it's a great source, a uh, great food source. And I asked, well, so do you not eat fish? And most people, at least most people in South Florida, are like, yeah, I eat fish. So, well, then you're getting creatine. Maybe not as much as if you took a supplement, but you're still getting creatine. Now, I don't know why someone in the psychology field would be basically promoting, fabricating lies. I mean, that's like, telling, that's like going to a physics class and telling them the earth is flat. Um, it literally has, I mean, there's no basis for it. So again, that, that person, whoever it is, is no different than the hundreds I've personally met or the thousands I've read about. I mean, actually, if, if you want to find just absolute nonsense about creatine and protein, just, just go on Twitter. It's like, oh my God, there, or Instagram. There's this one company that keeps promoting that whey protein when you consume it, it all gets converted to glucose and then eventually to fat. And I'm like, what are you guys even talking about? And I'll, you know, rarely I'll comment, but I'm like, yeah, I think I'll say something. I'll say something like, this is nonsense, period. And then I'll leave. <laughs> it's just like, people love to fabricate stuff. That's, uh, Ross, that's the only thing I think of. They just like to fabricate stuff. And why, I don't know. It's, I, I still don't know the answer to that. It's work to make a well-formulated point, you know, to like find the research, put together like a good case to, yep. to pick apart someone else's argument and say, well, you know, protein actually potentially has been shown to do this, but that would be the right way to do things. It is work. But, but, but when you, when you read some of these, they're sort of uh, they're like advertisements, uh, advertisements on uh, Instagram, 
uh, let, this, there was one in particular on protein. Someone had to sit down and write it. <laughs> so someone had to sit down and like, hmm, what could I fabricate today? Because I want to sell this vegan protein. And then we're going to say whey protein is worst. So someone is on their computer typing falsehoods to sell a product. Now, are, do they know they're falsehoods? I'm like, huh, do they know they're making stuff up? I bet you they do. And they don't care. You know, like you said, it's like working, you know, for uh, a cigarette company. Well, you know, it kills people, but at least I got a job. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some quote in there about uh, you can't get a guy to change his mind if it affects his paycheck. Like, there's some quote out there about that. But uh, that, that actually brings me to one of my questions I had. So I just got some uh, plant-based protein. It was on sale on my protein, the website. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll try this out. So if someone was to switch to plant-based protein sources or completely to a plant-based diet, that's something I actually want to do as I get older. I, I mm -hmm. think it'll be healthier, but that's a different point. But uh, yeah, is there any adjustments they should make or considerations based on the research? Well, I think uh, when you're looking at the plant-based pro protein, you're talking about plant-based protein powders. Is that what you're talking about versus consuming milk-based protein powders? Yes, yes. Okay. So the plant-based, um, what's interesting is I've gotten questions about it a lot and I haven't, I have not embarked or I haven't even got students to be interested in doing studies on plant-based protein, like uh, pea protein, or rice protein, or hemp, or whatever. And I want to, I just need to get a student who's interested who might be willing to carry out the project. But with that said, I'm never, I've never been against those protein powders. In fact, I had a, I corresponded with someone who said, she said, I've been using whey protein for years and recently for whatever reason, she's getting GI upset and she went through this whole host of symptoms. I'm, oh, I'm like, oh, that's kind of odd. Well, just try a different protein. And I, I even, I suggested pea protein, rice protein. I said, sometimes these plant-based proteins are a good substitute um, because the most common complaint for the milk base is always GI, GI issues or gastrointestinal issues. And uh, I said, if you're eating a mixed meal, so you're eating three to four times a day, however many times you're eating. It probably doesn't matter if you're consuming 40 grams of whey versus 40 grams of pea protein post-workout. And I usually tell people to take these powders or ready to drinks post-workout because it's easy, it's convenient. You don't have to cook a meal, maybe have your regular meal a few hours later, but do it post-workout. I, I would say there, you're not going to find a measurable difference. Why? Because you're eating three or four other times a day. And, and this is sort of a, a mild criticism of studies that look at the acute effects of consuming protein on muscle protein synthesis. And I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with these. Like if you take, you know, a 20 to 40 gram bolus of whey, muscle protein th synthesis goes up and then it sort of plateaus, blah, 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 blah. Well, uh, that's all fine. Um, but it doesn't address the fact that we don't just wake up and just consume 40 grams of whey protein and then we're done for the rest of the day. We're eating meals throughout the day. So when you're dealing with human beings that eat mixed meals throughout the day, does it really matter if it's 40 grams of whey or 20 or whatever your choice uh, chosen grams amount is versus 20 to 40 grams of, of rice protein or pea protein? My answer to that is no. Now, I always say it depends when it depends how the question is framed. If the question is framed, if you do a head-to-head -head comparison of just whey protein only, and let's say soy protein only, and the measure is muscle protein synthesis, it is true in an acute sense that whey protein does better than soy. 
like I said before, nobody does that. I mean, nobody just eats soy or whey protein and then, hey, we're done. We're done for the day. Let's uh, go home. We, we eat all day. So, and I think that's what gets lost in research. And that's why for the protein research, and, and I think you alluded to this um, earlier, I'm not a fan of just looking at the acute response. I like to do what are called time course studies. So you give people like in some of these protein overfeeding studies I've done, I have I basically provided whey protein. And these are all people that were fans of whey and they always consumed it. So they're like, yeah, hey, I get free protein for like two, two months or whatever. And the goal was just to elevate protein intake in my first study to 4.4 grams per kilo. My second study was roughly 3.4 grams per kilo. But I also didn't change their diet. It's like, eat what you normally eat. I just want you to eat more protein from the powder. And you're somewhat familiar with those results. If you don't change your training, nothing happens. If you change your training, the very high protein intake may promote a decrease in fat mass. In terms of a gain in lean body mass, it seems like there's a threshold amount. Maybe once you hit about 2.2 grams per kilo, that's all you need for changes to lean mass. But if you want to further improve body comp through a fat mass loss change, it seems that higher protein intakes will help there. So to me, that's more valuable because it has an immediate real world, real world application. We're not telling people to just eat whey protein and then you're done for the day. It's you got to consume it every day for two months. And so I think these time course studies are what's needed in the category. I don't think we need any more acute studies showing that, you know, for the next 24 hours, you know, muscle protein synthesis is elevated. Well, you know what? How about for the next two months? How about the next six months? I mean, and the time course studies are real hard to do. That's why they're not done. I mean, it's a pain in the butt convincing human subjects to follow your, you know, your instructions for two months. It's a total pain in the butt. Um, but it's the most valuable research because it gives you real world, gives you real world application. Yeah. It's over a longer time span as well. The results that you can trust them more. So yeah, that was a really interesting study. So basically, in my interpretation was that if calories are kept equal, if you're not in a, in a surplus and you eat up to 4.4 grams of protein per kg of body weight, uh, you can potentially lose body fat, but you don't add any weight and you can potentially add lean mass. Is that right? If or? you combine it with a heavy resistance program that is geared towards bodybuilding. Yeah, but if all well, this way, if you didn't change your training at all and just jacked your protein intake up, probably nothing would happen. <laughs> That's sort of the odd thing. Is like nothing. You don't gain weight. You don't lose weight. Nothing happens. So, which by itself is kind of an interesting observation. But that because, would have to be when calories are at maintenance, right? Because if they're well, in a surplus, would you? No. You know? Well, technically, the calories are, are at a surplus, but as you know. The intake of protein affects output because of the thermic effect of protein. So there's yeah. something else going on there. It could be one, output is increased proportionately because you can't store protein, so you got to oxidize. The other one is it is possible that the research subjects underreported their, in, their food intake and that consuming the protein actually had a appetite suppressing effect. And they didn't, they they didn't accurately measure or, or report what they were consuming. And maybe that's what, that's what contributed to it so that maybe they weren't eating as much as they said they were eating. Um, but then what we ended up doing is following up with all guys, and these are all bodybuilders, with people who are great at logging food. 
There's no one better than bodybuilders. They know exactly what they're eating because it's part of the sport. So when we follow these guys for one to two years, so they're super accurate. They can rattle off exactly how much protein they're eating. They still didn't gain body fat, even with a pro, even quote with a caloric surplus. And this is where I think it's confusing to people. Even with a caloric surplus, as protein intake kept going up, they weren't putting on fat. And in fact, they still had a hard time putting on muscle because they're already quite muscular, but they weren't putting on fat. And again, and again, that's because input affects output. It's not like I tell people, it's not like you put money in the bank and the interest grows. It's like putting money in the bank and someone's robbing the bank every night. That's what protein's like. You're putting calories in, but calories are also exiting because of the high thermic effect. Right. That's very interesting. So just, I just did a quick calculation there. So I weigh 81 kilos. So I would have been consuming, if I was in the study, I would have been consuming 358 grams of protein a day. Is that right? Is that 4.4 or 3.4 grams per kilo? 4.4. Oh yeah. You, you, you'd be consuming a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, and we had a lot of dropouts. I'll be honest. We had probably a quarter of the subjects dropped out because they couldn't eat. <laughs> so it was tough. It was tough. Yeah. So 275 grams, 358 grams, if it was 3.4 grams per kilo. So yes, even if you don't add body fat, even if your body mass, the fat or muscle doesn't change in terms of appetite reg regulation, that sounds like a very useful strategy. If someone is like, I'm feeling hungry, I'm feeling full, all this kind of stuff. Is there any uh, use to that, do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, well, here's the problem. If you're, if you're feeling hungry, well, I'm feeling hungry. The last thing I'm craving is protein per se. Um, I mean, people tend to crave foods that are mixed uh, in macronutrients, you know, protein, carbs, and fat, and sometimes just carbs and fat. I mean, when people are, I mean, my experience, particularly with subjects I've dealt with, and even athletes I've consulted with, when they're like starving, let's say for whatever reason, work has gotten in the way they haven't eaten in like six hours, they just want calories. They're not saying I want protein. They just want food. So if you, you know, if you experimented and just said, Hey, I'm going to eat an extra 40 grams of whey protein or pea protein per day, would it have an effect on my appetite such that I decrease intake of other things because it might blunt your appetite? I think that's one way to look at it. And that could be maybe a dietary strategy to improve body composition, possibly. Yeah. I'm coming at it from the general population point of view where most people's goals is to lose body fat because like 60% of the population is overweight. So um, to actually regulate appetite and to get into a calorie deficit is where the use might be by increasing the protein intake. Yeah, I think that would be good. I mean, uh, like my wife works with the general population and as you know, adherence is always a problem with anything. And I told her if, if they could just do one thing, just have a protein shake after they're done training when they go home, that actually might solve a lot of their issues. One, their protein intake is usually inadequate to begin with, but two, maybe it'll blunt their appetite a little so they don't just go home and just you know pig out on food. Because at the end of the day, most general population individuals, they literally have no idea what they're eating in terms of total calories or carbs or fat or protein. They just they just don't. Um, you know, when they, I'm sure you've heard complaints of, you know, I swear I'm eating less and I'm gaining weight. I'm like, well, by definition, you're not eating less, you're eating more if you're gaining weight, you know, so it, there's a bit of education there, but, but yeah, compliance is such a huge issue. Yeah. That, that's where behavior change comes in and that's a whole other topic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
So just one of your other studies that you did was on uh, caffeine and exercise performance. So I think a lot of people use coffee to wake up, but how does it tie in with exercise performance and then any other benefits outside of exercise, if you know any? Yeah, I think, well, caffeine by itself or even caffeine in coffee, there's plenty of data showing that it'll help performance, particularly on the endurance side. That data goes back to the 1970s when uh, David Kossel and John Ivey did that work. And then some more recent work showing that improves performance in strength power sports. I mean, one of my master's students way back when, she looked at, this was, wow, this is years ago. I think she looked at bench rest performance in women comparing caffeine to placebo. And caffeine certainly helped bench rest performance. So to me, caffeine is like the second best supplement, or I give it a, there's a 1A and 1B. 1A is creatine, 1B is caffeine, because caffeine literally will help all athletes, you know, from the endurance stuff to the strength power stuff. And if you're talking about coffee, obviously coffee will work just as well because of the caffeine. But I actually recommend drinking coffee for its benefits in terms of health. There's a lot of data. It's observational because you can't really do a randomized controlled trial on coffee. But there's a lot of observational data suggesting that coffee itself decreases the risk of multiple cancers. It's probably the food the most commonly consumed food where people get their polyphenols um, would be coffee. I mean, I'm an avid coffee drinker. I actually used to own a coffee company a couple of decades ago. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a great food. Well, technically, I guess it's liquid, but uh, the food industry treats it as a food because you sell it as a bean and a bean is technically a food. <laughs> but um, but I, yeah, I recommend caffeine. Uh, I use them before a race. When I do stand-up paddling races, uh, the dosing I use is five milligrams per kilogram body weight, or roughly, you know. And I don't, I'm kind of lazy to convert. I'm like, yeah, I'll consume 300 to 600 migs of caffeine before a race, and that works for me <laughs> quite well, actually. Very good. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess caffeine is great, but then also I was talking to Jamie about uh, Jamie Turner about uh, sleep. So. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the interaction between caffeine and sleep? Because it's not all yeah. good, right? You know, you have to be careful of your sleep, which is more important, right? Yeah, there's, well, there are individuals who can consume caffeine in the evening and still fall asleep. I don't know how they do it. Like for me personally, I have to stop consuming caffeine at about noon. And then that way, when I'm ready to go to bed, you know, the effects of it have worn off because of the half-life is roughly six, six and a half hours. But yeah, sleep, sleep is probably the best free recovery aid. I mean, adequate sleep is. But the interesting part is um, we did a, this was a project we did probably four years ago. We got a bunch of different athletes and part of it was they had to wear a, a watch that would record sleep and they were all sleep deprived. It was, or sleep deficient. On average, they were sleeping six to six and a half hours a night, which, you know, they said, well, you got to get at least eight hours. I know Dr. Tartar's like, well, eight hours is ideal. And I'm thinking, anyone get eight hours or there's some weird going on is it possible people who train may not need as much that does that doesn't seem to make sense to me but yeah sleep as long as caffeine doesn't interfere with sleep i would say it's fine but if it interferes with sleep choose sleep over caffeine because you got to recover yeah you can only train as hard as you can recover right right uh, exactly so then another uh, position statement was uh, on probiotics. And I know there's like a lot of kind of emerging research and it's like a new trendy kind of thing to get yeah. into. You see kombucha everywhere, just like you see caffeine products everywhere. So um, 
what were the kind of the main uh, points from that position stand that you can tell us? You know, what's interesting is uh, I spoke to the lead author. He's uh, he, he does a lot of work in probiotics. His name is Ralph Yeager. And um, it probably was the most difficult position stand to put together. And precisely because, you know, which probiotics are using um, when you do these studies, which bacteria do you measure? And also there's a confounder that people who exercise, they already have their gut microbiome is already different than people who don't exercise. So in general, and I always ask, you know, what's the bottom line with this? I say in general, does it hurt to take probiotics? Probably not. It could be quite beneficial, but also it would help to consume foods, you know, fermented foods like kimchi or sauerkraut. And I think you mentioned, would you, there was something else you had mentioned. Kombucha. Yeah, that. Um, those would be quite helpful. But at the end of the day, and I say this with almost all of, you know, whether it's related to exercise and nutrition, that oftentimes exercise seems to cure a lot of things that, in this case, your gut microbiome, and that you can take supplements help assist it. So to me, it's still exercise. That's number one, if you want to improve the healthier gut, and then possibly probiotics. Would I be right in saying that whey protein, creatine, uh, don't, I don't, I wouldn't, I won't say they have a negative effect on the gut microbiome, but they don't have a whole lot of like, uh, bacteria that'll improve your gut. Yeah. I would say they have a neutral effect. Neutral. Um, it doesn't help. Doesn't hurt. The benefits mainly, particularly with creatine, which, you know, might be underemphasized is the benefits with, uh, the brain. Um, I mean, I, like, I don't, I have no interest in gaining weight or losing weight. I actually take creatine for my, for my head. I think I just feel better um, when I'm on it. Um, and I tell people who, most people don't care about bodybuilding. And I tell them, hey, even if you don't care about lean body mass and all that, take, take creatine for your head. It's probably the single best, to me, it's this. Yeah, yeah, and very low side. So on probiotics and exercise, a lot of people that use exercise as a tool for fat loss. And uh, as you know, uh, exercise is a terrible way to, to lose body fat. So are you saying that one of the other benefits people should exercise for or to get is to improve their gut? Like, you know, how would that happen or what is going on there? The mechanism is unknown. It's and a lot of these are cross cross-sectional studies where you compare trained people to untrained people. And obviously there's a lot of confounders there because trained people do a lot of things different than untrained people. But there is something about regular exercise that improves gut health. And mechanistically, it's not known why. Um, you know, it could be part of the adage that, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time, good behaviors cluster and bad behaviors cluster. You know, it's not like you have one bad habit, you usually have multiple bad habits. You don't, you don't have one good habit, you have multiple good habits. So if, for instance, one of the good habits is you exercise, well, probably a secondary good habit is you probably eat better because you want to recover from exercise. And then the third sort of downstream effect is, well, maybe I should consider supplements that might help my health and my fitness. And that's where probiotics comes in. So there's all these different behaviors that tend to cluster and trying to separate them is difficult because you're exercising, you're trying to eat better, you're taking supplements, and maybe you're even more cognizant of the importance of sleep. So now you're doing all these things at once. I mean, what is it that's helping gut health? Is it probiotics? Is it eating more fermented foods? Is it you're exercising more? Or maybe is it losing weight? You know, certainly uh, being overweight or obese has a negative effect. So is it that? 
it's it's impossible to tell and it's it's impossible to separate all those uh, components yeah yeah for sure it kind of makes you think knowing yourself knowing your own strengths and weaknesses is like more important than any of this um so i know exactly. you're tired for time so we'll kind of just go through some like quick fire questions so okay one question a client had was how do they know what's good protein to look for like you know what would tell them you know protein a is better than protein b if they're in a supplement store or or online okay so if they're talking about protein supplements and not foods like chicken beef or fish yeah with supplements um it really depends on the goal i think the data shows milk-based proteins are in general better than plant-based protein. that's with regards to muscle protein synthesis if you're eating a mixed meal does it matter no the bottom line for most protein is protein powders is um adherence does it taste good enough that you'll keep doing it, you know, after you work out or before you work out? To me, that's the choice. Uh, in fact, I choose that. I say, what, what will you stick with over the type of protein? I mean, I don't care what the data says. If you're not going to consume weight, there's no point of telling you to buy it. If you like pea protein, take pea protein. So to me, adherence or compliance is number one. Yeah, that actually makes me think that the plant proteins I got, I won't be getting them again because the taste is just not as good. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an issue <laughs> big big issue yeah the adherence is yeah. harder than um what is something that you have changed your mind on recently regarding health exercise um or any topic underneath that what have i changed my mind on recently i can't to be honest i don't think i have um maybe a long time ago i did way back when i wrote i started writing some articles on glutamine and i thought wow this is a wonderful supplement you know, it might decrease the risk of uh, upper respiratory tract infection. It might help your immune system. And this is, we're talking back in the 1990s. And as, as data started to come out, I almost never recommend glutamine anymore because it's just not there. The only time I recommend it is if you're doing something so intensely, some exercise that is so intense and long in duration that it might depress your immune system. And then maybe, maybe glutamine is a benefit, but I'm rarely asked about glutamine anymore, and I rarely even talk about glutamine anymore, anymore even though I've published some data on it. So, but, but that change was over many years. It was like as you know, data started coming out showing, yeah, it kind of has no effect on your average trained person. I'm like, oh, okay, well, forget glutamine then. <laughs> Great, yeah. So you follow the evidence and the change when yeah. there's evidence counter to your opinion, yeah. Um, so then just to kind of like a broad question, uh, if you had to broadcast one message to the homes of, you know, every home in the U.S., what would you say that would uh, be aimed at improving their health? Like, what's, you know, one message you would hope everyone would take home that they could? Oh, I think, like, well, the king of everything when it comes to health is exercise. And it doesn't have to be strenuous exercise. It just has to be regular exercise. To me, exercise, regular training offsets a lot of the health issues that we see today. I mean, in the United States, I think by the end of uh, the uh, the 20s, uh, when, when we reach 2030, I think three out of every four Americans will either be overweight or obese. Now, you are correct. Exercise is not the best way to lose fat. However, if you exercise, it has downstream effects on changing other behaviors. People who exercise tend to sleep better. They are probably more cognizant of what they eat. Um, and, and because of that, because of the downstream effects, it's the single best thing you can do. And I think what, you know, What's missing in the last two years is the lack of emphasis on exercise and just maintaining a normal body weight, because at the end of the day, that's probably the single best thing you could do. I mean, 
you can follow whatever diet you want. At the end of the day, you're going to go off it because you will revert back to what you normally ate, probably as a child, unless you know you're in some sport. But we're talking about general population. You're not going to change your diet really that drastically. You're still going to consume the same foods you did as a kid. So that to me is the most important thing. I've given talks to physicians and I've told them, you're not training, you're done. Or your, pa your patients, if they're not exercising, they're done. It's just a matter of time before they gain too much weight, they become type two diabetic, they become hyperlipidemic, they become uh, hypertensive. You have to get them moving. You have to get them moving. And don't focus on the weight loss per se, focus on the movement and hopefully other things will take care of themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Just like a, a domino effect, like you said, all the other habits of the supplements and sleep. Yes. Jose, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. I'll attach Thank all you, the Ross. links uh, where people can reach you and find out all your, your great work. 